we are called to live in the face of opposition, particularly as we move into the world. How do we live in the face of opposition? He speaks of our conduct among the Gentiles here uh, the, uh, from Peter, who was a, a Jewish person writing to Jewish Christians. The word Gentile referred to those who were outside the believing community. Ultimately, many would come to believe in Jesus and enter to the church, but it's a, it's a word used to describe how we conduct ourselves among those outside the believing community of Jesus Christ. So I think it's a very appropriate passage, and we'll see similar themes that run throughout. Uh, the background situation is that they were facing difficulties, and they, they wanted to know, they needed to know, how do we live in the face of difficulty and opposition for our faith? I believe it's an important question for us to ask ourselves. Uh, the situation isn't exactly the same, but in the ancient world and in the modern world, we find that often being a follower of Jesus brings a certain amount of opposition with, with it. I uh, experienced this as, uh, as a young Christian. I became a Christian at the end of my time in college, and I knew beforehand that Christians were often not viewed favorably in the university community. Um, it was different, though, when I was on the other side of the fence. I remember sitting in certain classes thinking, boy, if people knew what I was thinking now, they would really hate me. Uh, this is what I was feeling in the end of the 1990s. Um, uh, however, uh, shortly afterwards, I returned to my hometown in uh, rural central Pennsylvania, and I, I realized the experience there was different. Uh, generally, working in a church or being in a Christian setting, while everyone wasn't a Christian, it was sort of viewed more favorably. I spent some time doing uh, a high school ministry, and I found when I went to the high school, the, the high school principal would welcome me in and, and allow me to go anywhere I wanted and say, we're really glad you're here. Over the last two decades, Christians have lived sometimes in one world or the other. Sometimes a world where their Christian faith brought respect, access, and privilege. And sometimes in settings uh, where they felt opposition simply because they were a follower of Jesus. Now, depending on where you work and live and what you do, you may experience more of one than the other. But it's, I think it's undeniable that in the last uh, five to ten years... Many Christians have, have felt the, the shifts of cultural tides and tensions so that we experience what I experienced in the university much more broadly. And the experience I had in my small town becomes much more narrow and limited. I, I want to point out that the experience Christians have when they feel sometimes like ex, uh, exiles or outsiders, people who are outside of privilege, power, and respect is not unique to us. As our culture changes, as power shifts, as alliances change, many groups of people around us are feeling the same way. In fact, I think it's one of the reasons why tensions are often so high around our cultural wars and our political powers. Everyone feels a little bit like an outsider. Certainly the experience of the church in the first century it's helpful for us to remember that while we might feel this in small ways, Peter's audience, Peter's congregation felt it in very large ways. Look at the types of things he assumes these people are experiencing. First of all, he calls them strangers and exiles. It's the language of someone who isn't at home in the culture where they live. 
Uh, perhaps you're here on a, a work visa or a study visa and your citizenship is not in this country. You know something of the instability that comes from that relationship. You don't have the same access to power, political power or cultural power. Well, these people weren't technically strangers and exiles. Most likely they weren't, but they, their experience of being Christians in the Roman Empire in the first century was one of being a cultural exile. When we feel like we've been marginalized as Christians, we realize Peter has a word for us. He goes on to say that they are people that have the experience of folks speaking against them even when they don't deserve it. Verse 12, people speak against you as evildoers. In particular, it's the Gentiles or the, uh, the non-believers is how Peter is using the word. They speak against you as an evildoer. That could be a, a very serious charge. It might not sound as threatening to us, but if you think about it, an evildoer, one who does evil, is one who could be even more excluded. Excluded in very painful ways by the governing authorities. There were foolish people saying ignorant things. They needed to be changed. And finally, in verses 18 to 20, uh, Peter speaks of a very real situation where someone could be beaten with no recourse. There is physical suffering uh, potentially on the horizon for these people. Things would go on to get very bad. The Roman Empire itself would uh, begin to turn against the fledgling church this uh, scheming Emperor Nero would scapegoat Christians for his political purposes. And only a few years after this is written, powerful persecutions would break out in Rome. Uh, uh, historians tell us, church historians tell us that this is where Peter himself died in Rome at the hands of the governing powers. Because he was spoken of as being an evildoer. The uh, situation is, is serious. It's getting more serious in the time where Peter wrote... It's even more serious than what we face. It's a situation in which people want to know what do we do? What's the plan? How do we respond? And Peter has a plan for them. As I thought about analogies, I, I instantly thought of football analogies. American football, if you're not uh, familiar with it, is a game built on plans. There are game plans and there are plans for every play. If you're not familiar with American football, there's, there's brief periods of collision and activity and then everyone stops and they wait and they make a new plan. In football, it's called a play. Uh, our, our local football teams had good days yesterday. Both CMU and Pitt won historic underdog victories. For the second week in a row, the University of Pittsburgh football team faced a late game decision, a fourth down and short distance to decide the game. The players needed a good plan. Last week, their coach chose to kick a field goal when they needed a touchdown. This week, they went for it. A very special play. Football aficionados know it's called Philly Special, a unique trickery that resulted in a game-winning touchdown and a historic win for the home team. The plans want, uh, players want good plays in big moments. And good plays are things that football fans talk about and reflect on for years to come. Peter spoke to people that needed a good play. They needed a good plan. They needed to know what to do. And Peter has a plan for them. 
The plan, I believe, is found in the first paragraph, verses 11 to 12. But the twist is this. I feel pretty confident that when Peter first unveiled this play to them, he said, here's what we're going to do, guys. They found themselves looking to the sideline saying, you know what? Maybe you should call something else. Because the play that Peter has for them, the plan that Peter has for them is not immediately obviously good. In fact, at first blush, it doesn't seem very good at all. Here's basically what he says. He says, I know there's difficulties you're facing. I know there's growing persecution. I know people are speaking against you as evildoers. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to keep doing good things and you're going to endure when they hurt you. They're going to crush you and then God's going to win. Maybe you're thinking the same thing. Peter, surely there's another play you can call here. Look, look at what he tells them. He says uh, in, in uh, verse 11, Beloved, you are sojourners and exiles. You are loved by God, but you're, you're a social exile. You're, you're, you're in a vulnerable position. It's a difficult time. Here's what you're going to do. You're first of all going to deal with the war in your own soul. You have all sorts of passions and desires, these wrong, distorted, bigger-than-life desires that will lead you astray. You're going to focus on bringing that into control, and then you're going to live an honorable life. Peter, come on. We're really hoping for something better at this moment. Something, some trickery, something, something that the other team is just going to surprise them. Maybe we could really pull out a good one. This doesn't seem to be... Something that's going to work. They're going to crush us. Peter says, I know. And then you're going to keep doing it. When you endure in the face of suffering, when you do good and you suffer for it, that is the play and God is pleased God's going to win. You feel the hesitation here? All right, maybe you're looking to the sideline asking for another play to be brought in. I'm not sure we want to run this. I'm not sure we want to keep running the same thing again. They're going to crush us. Peter doubles down. Look at the language he uses to talk about as he shifts. I think while the first one lays out this plan, you are beloved soldiers and exiles. You're going to fight the battle. You're going to keep doing good. And then God is going to be glorified. He's going to win. That's what he says in verses 11 and 12. Peter then turns and he takes that same play and he just works it out in three different scenarios. He's like the most stubborn football coach ever. Running up the middle, running up the middle, running up the middle. Right? Football fans know what I'm talking about. The rest of you, um, it's an example of being stubborn. <laughs> Peter is being stubborn. It's the same play. It's the same play again and again in different settings. This is if they needed to see a different picture. They need to take it and work it out in a different setting. Look at these three following paragraphs, these three pictures. Verse 13, Paul works, uh, Peter works out the play. He does it in the midst of the political setting. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to the governor as sent by him. So he pretty much says, whatever setting you're in, in the political realm, be a good citizen. Be, be a good subject. They would use those in the old, words in the old days. And if you watch Downton Abbey, right, they probably still talk about being subjects of the king. We're good, we would say, as you know, good democratic Republicans, we're good citizens. And what do good citizens do? They endure in doing good even when it's hard. 
That's really the play that's going on here. He says to them, this is the will of God. And they're looking at the sidelines, asking for another play. Maybe you can do something different, something special, something unique. And Peter says, no, this is the will of God. It's not just my play. This is God's plan for you. What? What's the plan? That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. There are people talking about them, slandering them running them down, putting them in a weaker position. It was this sort of talk, slander, gossip that would make the field ripe for Nero to turn against the Christians and make them scapegoats. It really is more threatening than it seems. Peter says, keep doing good. More than that, he says, you should seek to be a good citizen, particularly in the political realm. Be subject to every institution, at every level, in every place. Now, we have incredible privileges they didn't have. We can vote for leaders. We can participate in the the process of choosing, forming, and shaping our government. It's good and proper that we do it as good citizens. But Peter has hard words for us here, doesn't he? He's calling us to run that same play in the midst of our political realm. We're going to be good citizens. You're going to focus on doing good. And look at how he, what he calls them to do. Live as people who are free. You've battled against the passions of your own soul. Don't use your freedom in Christ as a cover-up for evil, but live as a servant of God. And look how he works out good works here in this setting. Verse 17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. It seems most likely Peter wrote this under the rule of the emperor Nero, the one who would kill him. Peter called for honor to be given in that setting. He not only calls us to honor here the the emperor, the leaders, the other political leaders, but he says in your civic realm you are called to honor everyone. You feel that the challenge of the play that Peter is calling here. Again, we might find ourselves looking for something different. We might say, Peter, you don't understand. Our political processes are really broken. We enter into the political process. If we're a Christian, we get mocked. We get names called against us. Surely there's a better plan. Maybe what we really need to do is just fight fire with fire. We need to be as vocal, as angry as the people against us. It's the only way we're going to win. Peter says, no. You're being spoken of. Again, there's things spoken about them that needed to be silenced. The ignorance of foolish people that was deeply threatening. And Peter says, no, we're calling the same play. This is God's play. It's his plan for you. I don't want to dwell on this too long. It's not a sermon on politics. But I just want to challenge you to think this through. When we show honor to people, particularly people we disagree with, we are saying something about the God we worship. The Bible opens by telling us all people are made in his image and worthy of respect, even when we disagree profoundly. It's possible to disagree profoundly and respect people made in his image. I was talking with a friend this past week. He's not a Christian, but he's interested in thinking through Christian ideas. I was describing the reality of our our social condition. I, I, I said to him, I think what's happening now 
is that when we live in a world, in a country where there is no reference to God, there is no higher good or higher power, social issues and politics become so big and so ultimate that we find it very difficult to treat our opponents with respect. And when Christians bow to those same pressures, they are not pointing to the power of a sovereign God who rules over all. You see what Peter's saying in this passage is that it's for the Lord's sake, verse 13, that we're subject. When, when we are good citizens, when we deal honorably with our elected officials at every level along the way and every branch of power, we are showing that we trust God and that we don't have to act viciously because God is worthy. We fear God and not people. Oh, Peter not only calls that same play, do good, endure, trust God, move forward. He calls it not only in the political realm, but also in the economic realm. Uh, verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Uh, the word servant in Greek could describe a whole lot of very different relationships in the ancient world. Uh, some might be something like an indentured servant. Others could be a person bonded for life. What they had in common is that none of them were attractive to be in. No one wanted to be a servant. But they, they had far less options than we did. The relationship between servant and master wasn't mediated by lots of government rules or unions. They didn't have HR people to appeal to. It was a vulnerable place to be in. And yet many people in his congregation found themselves there. They found themselves struggling and suffering under an unjust master. To simplify, in a shorter sermon where we're doing broad themes, we too in our life will experience unjust and difficult things in our economic life. Again, our world is different. We have options to leave. We can make grievances and appeal to uh, in appropriate ways in a difficult work setting. But Peter says, when you find yourself in this difficult work setting with an unjust master, we're going to call the same play again. They would have been tempted to do many other things, right? Maybe to intimidate back, to threaten. Maybe to viciously slander and undermine the authority of their boss. Maybe to simply stop working every moment they didn't absolutely have to. Peter says, no, you're going to endure. You're going to endure in doing good. Verse 19 because you're mindful of God. You see, friends, Peter calls the same play again and again and again because he believes God has directed us to do it and because he believes God is present. We, we see with our own eyes only the human factors in play. And we're tempted to uh, manipulate and shift them for power and control but Peter says, when mindful of God, you endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is a gracious thing. You see what Peter does is he takes this play, so to speak, fighting the inward fight, seeking to do good even when we face enemies. He takes that play and he puts it in the context of an all-powerful sovereign God who is watching and who is active. 
honor, um, sorry, uh, uh, this is a good and gracious thing, he says. Verse 20, when you do good and you suffer for it, it's a good and gracious thing in the sight of God. Maybe. Maybe when you conduct yourself this way in your place of employment, you will, you will convince your boss to repent and believe in Jesus. And maybe you won't. But, but Peter, you see, is operating around a different principle. Maybe when you treat your uh, fellow, fellow workers and your employer with respect when they don't deserve it, maybe when you endure unjust suffering, you will win the day and convince people you're right and things will change. And maybe they won't. But you see, Peter's not operating. He's not orienting around that principle. It's important. It's legitimate. But he's concerned with something bigger. He says your life can be lived before the face of God and he sees what you do. He is glorified when you follow him faithfully. Third and final example. Maybe at this point the people are a little skeptical. Peter, you just don't understand. You've never worked in our setting. Maybe they find themselves saying, Peter, you don't know how vicious the Roman Empire can be. You haven't yet seen it. You will, but maybe they're thinking, you haven't yet seen it, Peter. Or maybe they're thinking, Peter, you really don't know what it's like to have this sort of a master. You, you grew up as a fisherman. Your father may have been tough, but it wasn't like this. This third and final example, Peter turns and he says, the play that God's calling, the plan that I'm giving you, the thing we're running again and again and again, the reason I'm so confident as I've seen it before, I saw it in Jesus. That's where he lands here in verse 21. And he just reaffirms the calling that we have as Christians, a commitment to do good in the face of evil, to endure unjust suffering in the sight of God. He says it this way, verse 21, for to this you have been called. God's called you to do this. We find ourselves looking around for another play or another plan. We realize it's not some human direction, but this is divinely given. The God who created the universe has called you to do this. Who are we to talk back? He called us to do it, but... And Jesus, he did this first. You see what Peter does here in this final paragraph. He works through the same scenario. Faithfulness in the midst of opposition. Faithfulness in the midst of difficulty. Faithfulness in the midst of being slandered. And he says, Jesus did it first. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Jesus knows what it is to suffer unjustly. You, you and I, when, when we suffer, it'll always be a mixture of some of our own stupid fault and suffering from people around us. But Jesus suffered purely. He was really innocent and the full weight of the governing authorities came down on him. You know why we know Paul wasn't naive about the, 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 the brutality of the Roman emperor whenever he said, honor the emperor? 
Because he saw what the Romans did to Jesus. He saw how they treated an innocent man. He's he's not naively calling this play, but he's seen it in practice. He's seen what it means to pick up your cross because his Lord and Savior did it first. What's more, he, he knows that the sin Jesus bore on the cross is not just the sin of them, but it's our sin that he bore on the cross. In these final verses, Peter takes a turn to this whole story. Verse 24, he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He himself bore our sins. Friends, when we as Christians find the Uh, world becomes a more difficult place to live in we can be tempted to think of the us and them categories we're in the right and they're in the wrong in times that may be true but Peter introduces the great levelizer of all human interactions all have sinned and fallen short of the glory this is what he says here it's your sins on the cross when Jesus ran this play When Jesus pursued faithfulness in the midst of endurance, when he carried the weight and the curse of sin upon himself on the cross, it was our sin that was on him. Do you see that twist he brings at the end? He turns the tables. Who is it that suffers innocently? It was Jesus. Who is it that slandered and reviled him? Who is it that burdened him with their sin? It was us. God was gracious to us. How do we love our neighbors? Friends, we we don't do it as people who are naive. You will find, as you seek to love and serve in the city, you will find many wonderful people made in God's image, capable in his common grace of real, deep, profound relationship, exhibiting something of the character of God in whose image they were made, and yet you also face opposition maybe twisted and tangled together. If you don't know that you go out to love and serve the city as people who are fundamentally sojourners and exiles, you will be shocked when they speak of you as evildoers. And you'll look for another plan. And you'll, you'll be tempted to accommodate. You'll be tempted to take away everything that might give offense. You'll be tempted to hide Or you'll be attempted to fight with a viciousness that is unbecoming of someone beloved by the God of grace. You'll be tempted to do something that's not in the plan. But if you know that not only God has called us to act this way, but Jesus has gone before us and that God is present, we can find grace in him to live faithfully. How did Jesus do it? He entrusted himself to one who judges justly. Again and again, the text brings us back to this. Yes, we endure doing good in the face of opposition, but we do it because we see the power of the living God and we trust ourselves to him. You will face great powers of opposition around you, but there is a power above all. There is a God to be feared more than all people. And when our hope and our vision is locked firmly in there, we can truly love our neighbors instead of fearing them. 
And by God's grace, we may come to see many of them glorifying God on the day of his visitation, joining us in glorifying the God of grace. That is our great prayer. Let's pray together.